Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, through chapter 13, verse 6, and can be found on page 1009 in the Pew Bible. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. Again, that can be found on page 1009 if you're using one of the pew Bibles. And before we look to the word, would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we are grateful for your grace, the grace that you've given us to gather this morning and to fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you promised to put him on display through the preaching of your word. And so we're eager this morning to see him. And we're asking, would you be pleased to help us to focus our minds and our hearts on your word, and would you use your word to bring us to Jesus, to bolster our faith in him, and to give us grace to persevere as living sacrifices. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do you think of when you hear the word worship? What comes to mind? Probably music and singing, that's what we most commonly think of when we hear worship. And that makes sense. We have a worship pastor, and he plays the piano and leads music and arranges songs. But he also does much to arrange the whole of our service. He gives thought and leadership to the entire Sunday morning service. In fact, if you look at your bulletin, you'll see that we lay out our morning schedule very deliberately. Look at, look at what it says. Worship through singing. Worship through sharing and prayer. Worship through the word. Worship through communion. That's an intentional way for us to say the whole service is worship. Our entire gathering together this morning is worship. Maybe devotion comes to mind when you hear the word worship. To worship someone is to be devoted to them. I'm sure... You wouldn't say this, but sometimes you'll hear people speak of devotion to a sports team as worship, like he worships the Celtics, for example. By the way, sorry about that loss last night. (laughs) Or they speak of loved ones in terms of worship. He really worships the ground she walks on. I'm sure you've heard that. So maybe to worship God is to be devoted to him. Well, if that's the case, then, then what would that look like? How would you explain this kind of of worship. Now our scripture reading began in verse 28 of chapter 12, and you have it before you, so look at it with me. I'm going to read chapter 12, verse 28 again. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Here in this verse, one that Pastor Mitch preached last Sunday, you're commanded to offer God acceptable worship. What should that look like? Maybe you wonder, what does that worship look like practically in my life? What's the anatomy? What's the makeup of acceptable worship? In the Old Testament life of Israel, worship occurred when a sacrifice was offered in the temple. The worshiper would come to God who dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and he would worship by presenting a sacrifice. That's why Hebrews 9.1 says that the first covenant, the old covenant, contained regulations for worship. And that a tent was prepared, eventually a temple built, and worshipers would go to God offering acceptable sacrifices as prescribed by God, according to his regulations and in the place that he assigned. That place was a place of worship. And those who offered sacrifices were worshipers. Well, what does any of that have to do with you today? Is any of that the least bit relevant for you in the middle of May 2022. Maybe that was important to first century Jews, like the ones this writing was originally sent to, but me, you might say, nah. Well, it's maybe more relevant than you think, especially if you want your worship to flow from faith in Jesus Christ. So do you want to know what the life of acceptable worship looks like? Do you want to understand the worship that God prescribes? Would you like to be energized in worship so that you're moving away from dullness and toward full-throated and wholehearted praise. Well, then let's look together at the final chapter of the book of Hebrews. And you're already turned there, so let's jump right in to chapter 13. Can you see the connection between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love, 13.1, continue. So last week, you were commanded to offer acceptable worship. Now this morning, as we look at chapter 13, you're being told to do the things that constitute that worship. Chapter 13 is intended to tell you what the life of acceptable worship looks like. What characterizes it? And immediately in verse 1, you're told to love and to persevere in love, to continue in it. And this command governs, I think, the first six verses of the chapter. Verses two through five are meant to explicate that love. And you might be tempted to think, Hebrews hasn't said anything about love. This just seems to come out of nowhere. Well, let me remind you of chapter six. When the Hebrews are commended in chapter six, verse 10 says, for God isn't unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. They have loved thus far, and the preacher doesn't want them to waver. He wants them to continue in love. Well, what does persevering love look like for this Hebrew audience? First, it looks like continuing to show hospitality for strangers. You see that in verse 2. This doesn't mean taking in people off the street or welcoming people that you just know nothing about. This isn't talking about indiscriminate hospitality to anyone who requests it. Rather, it's talking about generously welcoming in brothers and sisters, probably from other towns and other cities. 1 Peter 4 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another, church. 
without grumbling. Christians were to show hospitality to one another even when they came in from out of town. Leaders in the church would have frequently needed hospitality as they traveled from city to city, and so also would have those fleeing persecution from other cities. They would have been looking for refuge, and the Hebrews are exhorted to provide that refuge. Do not neglect showing hospitality, it says, to strangers. And then I think he recalls Genesis 18, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In Genesis 18, Abraham gladly welcomed three men at the oaks of Mamre. He washed their feet, he provided water, he gave them rest, he fed them. And then it's explicit in Genesis 19 that when Abraham provided this hospitality, he was entertaining angels. Secondly, preserving love looks like continuing to remember those who are in prison and those who are being mistreated. The Hebrews had been commending, commended for loving in this specific way back in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The Hebrews had boldly aligned themselves with other Christians who were suffering. Some of these fellow Christians were in prison, like it appears Timothy was. We'll see that in verse 23. And some were being mistreated. And the Hebrews were to empathize with those in prison as though they were in prison themselves. And they were to empathize with those being mistreated as if they were suffering bodily like they were. They were to weep with those who weep. They were to suffer with those who suffer. And this should remind you of Moses, if you think of chapter 11, verse 25. He willingly chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose to be mistreated. Thirdly, persevering love looks like continuing in sexual purity. Marriage must be honored. The marriage bed must be undefiled. God has purposed sex to be enjoyed only by one man and one woman who have committed themselves to each other in marriage. All other forms of sex, including pornography, premarital sex, and homosexuality are aberrations of God's good design. In God's eyes, they're disobedient acts of law-breaking. They're sin. And as a result, look what it says. God promises to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuals, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, praise God that he saves and transforms sinners all the time. Such were some of you right here in this room. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were transformed. But make no mistake about it. If anyone remains in sexual sin and does not repent and turn to Christ by faith, they will come in to judgment. Remember, our God is a consuming fire. Fourth, persevering love looks like contentment. The Hebrews were to keep themselves from the love of money. Ah, the love of money. Money isn't evil, but if you love it, you're in trouble. 
1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And then listen to this. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Many, because of a craving for money, have apostatized. That's what it says. So Hebrews, don't love money. Instead, love one another and use your money to serve and to be generous to your church family. And exercise contentment. Be satisfied with what you have. Don't lust after what you don't have. Why? Because God has promised to always be with you. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you see that in the text? When you think of these words, do you think of them in regard to financial contentment? That's the context. Don't chase after money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as a result, church, you can be confident. Verse 6 is the response of faith. You can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's only appropriate, isn't it? If God has said that he will never leave you, then it's right for you to respond that he is your helper. And if God's your helper, then there's no reason to fear. What can man do to you? So I'd like us to give it a try. Say it together. The Lord is my helper. Say it again. The Lord is my helper. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, I wanted you to say, the Lord is my helper. In response. So let's try it again. <laughs> that did not go the way I had scripted it. Say, the Lord is my helper when, when I'm done here. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's right. That's right. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We need to hold fast to this church. God is with you. And this would have been a huge encouragement to the beleaguered Hebrews. They're in need of endurance because of persecution and suffering. So they must remember that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's their helper. They don't have to be afraid in the midst of persecution and suffering. Verse 6 is really a fitting close to the entire paragraph, isn't it? It undergirds the whole of verses 1 through 6. Think about what each of these commands to persevere in love actually do. They each prompt the Hebrews to not shrink back. They challenge the Hebrews to maintain faith. They require the Hebrews to re-engage fully with suffering and persecution. That's what these commands do. They require the Hebrews to re-engage with their suffering. Think about it. To show hospitality to persecuted Christians was to enter the crossfire of suffering. To remember those in prison and those mistreated would also put them at risk. Often they would take prisoners' food. Sometimes they'd even stay, if they could, with the prisoner, which would mean closely associating with those already persecuted. It would be like telling the persecutors, Hey, I'm a Christian too. Just wanted to let you know I'm here. What about the ethical imperatives in verses 4 and 5? If you want to get persecuted, just draw clear lines regarding sexual sin. Just by living with the conviction to obey God, you can draw attention. I remember how the headlines blew up when Tim Tebow stated publicly that he was a virgin and intended to 
continue to be one until he got married. You'd have thought he cured cancer, the way the press jumped on that. Now, if you go a step further and not only live with conviction, but preach the gospel to a culture that loves darkness, you're going to get persecuted. It was true in the first century Roman Empire. It's true today in Vermont. And think about money as well. If you had been persecuted and mistreated and some of your possessions and property had been seized, you'd be tempted to hunker down and save money, wouldn't you? You'd be tempted to recoup your losses by maybe redirecting energy away from the church. Every single one of these commands to persevere in love is a command to embrace suffering and persecution. Verse 16, we'll call it a sacrifice, pleasing to God, doing good to the brothers and sharing what you have with the church, even amid persecution. So verses 1 through 6 describe acceptable worship as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that continues in love, a sacrifice that leans away from apostasy and leans forward with persevering faith. In verses 7 through 19, the description of this sacrifice continues, but it gets more pointed. Faithful suffering is commanded with clarity. It's stated plainly and in a way that directs the Hebrews once again to pure faith in Jesus Christ alone. So follow with me as I read now verses 7 through 19. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God." Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Beginning in verse 7, the preacher turns the listener's attention to their leaders. Maybe you saw it as we read. This section is bookended with imperatives concerning leaders. The passage starts with commands pertaining to past leaders in verses 7 through 9, and it closes with commands pertaining to present leaders in verses 17 through 19. Look again at verse 7. The command is to remember your leaders, the ones who preached, the ones who spoke to you the word of God, maybe the ones who were involved in planting the Hebrew church. We don't know. These are leaders that are now deceased, leaders from their past. And the Hebrews are told to imitate their faith. They are to imitate their faith by considering the outcome of their way of life. They're commanded to consider how their lives ended, their, their faithfulness all the way to the end, and then act likewise. So they're being told to emulate their perseverance. 
Their past leaders acted honorably, by faith, clear to the end. And the Hebrews are to do the same. After all, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was the same yesterday when past leaders cared for you. He's the same today as current leaders care for you, and he'll be the same forever. Jesus is faithfully shepherding you, and he's done it through these faithful shepherds. So you, Hebrews, should likewise be faithful. And this means not being led away by diverse and strange teachings, particularly teachings that emphasize foods in the Old Testament, teachings that state the necessity of finding grace in sacred fellowship meals that are based on Old Testament rites and regulations. These meals don't bring the benefit that false teachers say they do. They don't strengthen the heart. They don't strengthen the inward man. Listen to chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 from Hebrews. According to this arrangement, that procedure in Old Testament worship, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The new covenant worshiper who seeks to offer to God acceptable worship must not heed such diverse and strange teachings, teachings that provoke the listeners to turn back to the old covenant, to participate in Levitical food rites. No, the heart is strengthened by grace, grace alone, not by foods. Grace through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. The outdated sacrifices of the Old Covenant cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Because, in verse 10, we have an altar from with those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Do you see that in verse 10? What altar do we have? CMC, what altar do we have? We have a new covenant altar where Jesus Christ was offered as the true Day of Atonement sacrifice. How is the argument made in verses 10 through 12? That is a really good question. In verse 10, it's stated that we have a unique new covenant altar, one from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That means that old covenant worshipers under the Levitical order can't eat here at this altar. Well, why is that? Because on the Day of Atonement, no one could eat the sacrifices that were offered by the high priest. They weren't eaten. That's verse 11. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin. That's a reference to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Those animals are burned where? Outside the camp. That means these sacrifices are not eaten. There's no fellowship meal of any kind. Instead, they're removed from the camp, or in the case of the Jerusalem temple, they're taken outside the city and burned. Well, where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city. John 19 makes it clear. Jesus went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called Golgotha. He was crucified near Jerusalem, but he was outside the city. Therefore, just as the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement were burned outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is the altar 
that we enjoy. This is the new covenant altar that we now have as believers in Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Are you marveling at this? This altar is life-changing. This altar is the place where the life of acceptable worship begins. Let me ask you a question. Who was it that went outside the camp? Who was required to leave the camp and go out? The unclean? Lepers, for example, with skin spots and infections? The unclean were to go out. The defiled? For example, somebody who touched a dead body? Out. The impure? Lawbreakers? were cast outside the camp, the disobedient were cast out? And was the place outside the camp a beautiful place? Was it the kind of place you'd want to build a sandals resort? No, no way. The Israelites put their refuse and their excrement outside the camp. They burned carcasses outside the camp. They placed all that was unclean there. It was a place of burning and stench. It was a place of unholiness, a place cursed by God, a place of shame and degradation. And now, that's the place of our altar? That's the altar that you get to enjoy? The altar that you're privileged to worship at? Yeah, that is your glorious altar, CMC. Why? Why is that such a wonderful altar? Because that's where Jesus suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify you through his own blood. Well, how did he do that? And why did he go outside the gate to do it? Because you were a sinner, brother and sister. You were unclean because of your transgressions. You were defiled by God. You were impure. Your heart was blemished. Your soul was infected with the sores of sin. You were a lawbreaker, guilty in God's eyes. And you deserve to be cast out. Your destiny was to be sent away as a sinner to a place of filth and shame. You were headed straight to the burning fires of hell, apart from the presence of the Lord. But Jesus intervened. He saved you. He sanctified you through his own blood because he suffered outside the gate. He was cast out for you. He was sent away for you. He went to the cross so that you would be brought near to God. At the cross, Jesus became unclean with your sin so that you could be made clean. He became impure so you could become pure. Your unrighteous law-breaking was imputed to him outside the camp, and he was punished so that you could be justified. He was defiled so that you could be sanctified and made holy. And all this required the shedding of his own blood so that he could die in your place. When he became unclean and impure with your sin, when he was made a sin offering, he took your judgment. He bore God's wrath, and he fully atoned for your sin. He died the death that you deserved. This is your altar, church. This is where Jesus gave himself as a once and for all sacrifice. Jesus went to a place of shame, and he endured reproach and suffering so that you could have an altar of acceptance. He gave himself as this sacrifice so that you could come to him and find forgiveness and holiness and right standing with God on the basis of what he accomplished. Therefore, go to him. Go to Jesus. 
Feast on him by faith. That's verse 13. Go to him. Find in him grace that will strengthen your heart. If you devote yourself to him alone, your soul enjoys great benefit. He's for you and no longer against you. So go to Jesus alone. Don't drift from him. Don't look away from him. Don't lose your passion for him. Now, if you go to him, you must go to him outside the camp. And you do this by bearing the reproach that he endured. You take up your own cross and you follow him. Again, this should remind you of Moses back in chapter 11. Verse 26 says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses surveyed all the treasures of Egypt as one who grew up in the royal court and he compared them to the reproach of Christ. And he weighed the two. He did a cost-benefit analysis and he chose the reproach of Christ. He assigned it supreme value. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. And that's exactly what you see in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So the Hebrews are exhorted to be like Moses. They're to value the reproach of Christ and go to him outside the camp. Now think about this for a minute. Think of the implication of this for first century Jews who are being tempted to go back to Judaism, who are being tempted to add Levitical regulations to faith in Jesus. The preacher in verse 13 is essentially saying, leave Judaism behind. Leave Jerusalem and the temple behind. Go to Jesus alone outside the camp, outside the city. Go to an altar that can't be found in the temple. Instead, they should be seeking the heavenly Jerusalem, that city to come. Do you see that? So the exhortation is to go to Jesus and to bear the reproach that he endured. And this is what it means to live a life of acceptable worship. You offer yourself as a sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ. That's why verse 15 says, Through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Just as the Old Testament sacrifices were offered every day, you are continually, daily, to offer up your sacrifice of praise to God. And this sacrifice is marked by two things. One, verbal praise to God. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And two, shared deeds of love. A common community of love. When you see Jesus with eyes of faith and you go to him as the true sacrifice for sin, it only follows that through him you would speak and sing praise to God. It's only on account of dullness and unbelief that you would approach God this morning with closed lips and a quiet voice. So when we stand to sing, to God be the glory, I want to encourage you to let it rip. Not because you're trying to make a show or an outward display, but because you've seen Jesus. And you can't help but worship him with everything you've got. CMC, we are a community that should be marked by constant Jesus talk before and after the service and robust singing during the service. You also see in verse 16 that sacrifice is pleasing to God. There's acceptable worship. Our sacrifices that continue to do good and are generous with the church. 
That's why I said that verses 1 through 6 describe acceptable worship as a sacrifice. Do not neglect to do good and to share. That's verses 1 through 6. So worship is much more than singing. It's your, your whole being and the whole church community living and acting sacrificially toward one another in the name of Christ. So a sacrifice pleasing to God denies itself and bears the reproach of Christ in order to do good and to share generously no matter what the risk, no matter what threat of persecution, no matter what suffering or deprivation might come as a result. A community of worship is marked by selfless generosity and it cares for one another's needs. A community intent on living this way will persevere in faith and it won't flag when challenged by persecution or difficulty. So the author calls on the Hebrews to faithfully suffer reproach because of Jesus Christ as an expression of their commitment to trust in him alone. And then in verses 17 through 19, he returns to leaders. He's already mentioned past leaders. Now he addresses present leaders. Leaders who evidently are living faithfully and are shepherding this church well. The Hebrews are commanded to obey their leaders and submit to them. After all, they're keeping watch over your souls, he says. How foolish would it be for sheep who are being tenderly cared for by committed shepherds to just wander off and ignore the care that's available to them? Good leaders who know that they will have to give an account to God for how they lead will work to the benefit of those under their care. They will faithfully watch over the souls in their church. And this was the case for the Hebrews. They have had leaders, and they continue to have leaders who are faithful, who are trustworthy. So they're urged to continue in faithful submission to those leaders. And when the church obeys and submits to its leaders, it means joy for the shepherds and an advantage to the sheep. It's a win-win. The leaders can lead without groaning, and the whole flock derives benefit. Now I have to pause here and say a couple things. One, elders, leaders of Christ Memorial Church, let this be a reminder for you this morning. Pay special attention. Whether you've been an elder for one year or 30 years, you have been tasked with the responsibility to keep watch over the souls of this church. And you will one day give an account to God for how you did. That's sobering, isn't it? Men, I'm one of the younger elders on the board. Who who am I to say this? But on the authority of God's word, I say to you, you will give an account. You're responsible for souls here. You must act honorably in all things. The church is depending on you to live a life of acceptable worship through Jesus Christ. And I'm committed to holding myself to no less of a standard. And gentlemen, when we remember our accountability to God, I think we lead better, don't we? Let's recall often that we will have to give an account to the benefit of this church and to the praise of God's glory. And secondly, CMC, I can confidently say on behalf of the elders that you are truly allowing us to lead with joy. It's a pleasure and a privilege to serve. And that is in large part due to your willingness to submit happily. Eldering is not easy. But to the extent that you can, you make it an easier task. And so 
I'm thankful for your godly hearts of obedience and submission. And I encourage you to persevere in following our leadership for the good of the church and to the praise of God's glory. In verses 18 and 19, the preacher writing to the Hebrews includes himself among the present leaders. That's why he so naturally says, pray for us. Apparently, he and other leaders have been unable to gather with the Hebrew church. It's likely that he's been imprisoned. He wishes to be restored to the Hebrews as soon as possible. It also appears that Timothy was imprisoned until recently. So persecution has impacted present leaders, thus the request for prayer. And these persecuted leaders, including the preacher himself, are confident that they are living lives of acceptable worship. They're leading faithfully. They're devoted to Jesus Christ alone. And they have a clear conscience. They're acting honorably in all things, which means they're charting a course to finish well. They're charting a course to remain faithful till the end, like the leaders that went before them in the past. He's requested prayer for himself. Now the author pronounces a blessing to conclude the sermon. So let's read together verses 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again the de- from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This benediction contains a prayer for power. The life of acceptable worship is energized to persevere because God himself works in you that which is acceptable. Look at verse 20. The author calls upon God as the God of peace. I think he does this because he's hoping in God to restore his relationship with the Hebrew church. The God of peace will be able to bring peace to this important relationship, including restoration with all present leaders. So he calls upon the God of peace to make peace. And he addresses God as the one who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is a restatement by the author of the superiority of Jesus. The same way that God brought up the shepherd Moses out of the land of Midian, to deliver Israel from Egypt. So God brought up the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, the one greater than Moses, not out of Midian, but out of the grave. God brought him up from the dead. And the covenant secured because of the blood of Jesus is an eternal covenant. So the author is appealing to the God of peace who establishes Jesus as superior and he asks God to equip the Hebrews with everything good that they may do his will. And how does he expect God to accomplish this? How will God equip the Hebrews? By working in them. The author includes himself. He says, in us, that which is pleasing in his sight, or that which is acceptable in his sight. It's the same word translated acceptable back in chapter 12, verse 28. So the power to live a life of acceptable worship comes from God himself. 
He works in you to enable you and empower you to be acceptable in his sight. So this is another call to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ always perseveres. So the author closes with a benediction of empowerment, trusting that the omnipotent God of heaven will enable his people to continue in love and in faithful suffering. So when I read this benediction at the close of our service, I'll be calling on the same God of peace to do likewise right here at CMC. He loves to work in his people, even today, that you might be energized to persevere. Well, there ends the sermon proper. Now in verses 22 through 25, there's a closing farewell. And this farewell is designed to foster collegiality among all who are a part of the church. The preacher appeals to his listeners to patiently heed his exhortation. He encourages them one last time to pay attention to it and apply it diligently. He's tried to write a succinct warning, fitting for the task of warning them about falling away. He informs them of Timothy's release. Apparently he's been imprisoned, as I've said. But now he's free, and the hope is that Timothy and the author will both be able to visit soon. He also tells the Hebrews to greet their leaders and all the saints. You can see how the author expects collegiality. He commands the audience to obey and submit to its leaders. Then he asks them to pray for him, himself being a leader. Now he's telling them, go greet all your leaders. You see what he's doing? He's promoting a spirit of unity. He's wanting the audience to return to full fellowship with their faithful leaders. He also mentions those who come from Italy. There's a good chance those are persecuted saints who had been forced to leave Rome under Emperor Claudius's edict. And then he closes with a sweet phrase, grace be with all of you. And that brings us to the end of the book of Hebrews. In this final chapter, chapter 13, the preacher has given multiple commands, all meant to direct you to a life of acceptable worship. His aim is that the Hebrews would see the unique glory of Christ's sacrifice outside the camp and would likewise lay down their lives as a collective sacrifice of praise. And it's no different for you here, CMC. To live a life of acceptable worship, you must continue to bear Christ's reproach as a sacrifice. This means taking up your cross and following him. It means denying yourself as a church and caring for one another. It's persevering in love and suffering. That's what it is. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone so that you will endure faithfully all the way to the end. This is Christian worship. This is new covenant worship. You come to God through Jesus Christ alone and then you lay down your life as a sacrifice. That's why Romans 12.1 says to present yourselves, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's why 1 Peter 2.5 says you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And when you lay down your life as a sacrifice, it will always be marked by ongoing love for Christ's church and faithful suffering. So how are you doing, CMC? Are you willing to rally together in order to support one another? Are you resolved to continue in love for one another no matter what happens? We don't have persecuted believers fleeing to us from Canada or from other states. We don't know American church members who are being imprisoned for the sake of Christ. Yet, 
But I still want to ask you this. Are you ready to deny yourself for the benefit of the body? Are you weeping with those who weep? Are you caring for anyone who is mistreated in any way for the sake of the gospel? Do you have each other's backs if people start losing their jobs as witnesses for Christ? Are you willing to have your reputation sullied if another brother or sister needs support as they take a stand for righteousness? You know, I think verses 4 and 5 are quite poignant in our day and age. Are you prepared to insist that marriage be held in honor? Are you ready to declare that the marriage bed remain undefiled? Jesus was hated by the world in John 7, 7 because he testified that its works were evil. If we're going to faithfully preach the gospel in this generation, we must testify that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. We must shine light in the darkness. We must call sin, sin, and expose it. That's what Jesus did, and he was reproached. That's what the preacher to the Hebrews did, and he was persecuted. And it's what we must do. But you won't do it. You won't be bold if you're unwilling to go to Jesus outside the camp and to bear the reproach that he endured. So I think it's worth asking, are you persevering as bold witnesses for Christ, even as the world around us makes it more difficult? Are you willing to confront sin and expose sin by taking a stand for righteousness and then direct people to see their sin and confess their need for a Savior? That's what it means to preach the gospel. And it's getting harder and harder to do. But we can't give ground. You can't give ground or fold altogether due to societal pressure. That's not perseverance. That's drifting. That's flagging. And you don't want to waver or vacillate in your worship. No, you want your witness to have an impact on the world. You want to honor Christ by valuing his approach, his reproach. So you're willing to confront sin and faithfully Proclaim the gospel without compromise. And when you do, it's becoming more and more likely that there will be financial repercussions. It is increasingly more difficult to witness for Jesus Christ without consequences. Workplaces don't like it. Schools don't like it. Colleges don't like it. And they're all asking you to be silent. They're demanding that you be silent. And I'm just saying, if you choose to value the reproach of Christ... It will be because you're convinced that reproach is greater wealth than the treasure of this world. All the ease and the esteem and the wealth that this world has to offer. So how are you doing keeping your life free from the love of money? Are you willing to experience a financial setback if that's what taking up your cross requires? Or do you hedge when money is on the line? Your job's at stake? Or a business deal? Is at risk? It isn't so easy to identify boldly with Christ when you're pressured to compromise in some of those ways. These are hard questions. But how you answer is going to become more and more important. I don't foresee it getting easier for those who want to build the church here in New England. I'm afraid it will only get more and more difficult. But Jesus is worth it, isn't he? Isn't it indeed more valuable to be mistreated with the people of God and to have the reproach of Christ? He's the one that went outside the camp to suffer reproach for you. He's the one who bore your sins and died in your place. He became unclean and defiled and cut off, church, for you. Your worship begins with him. 
You come to God through Christ alone, by faith alone, and your acceptable worship finds expression in your willingness to then suffer as a sacrifice. You love boldly, and you suffer faithfully, and you persevere with unswerving faith in your Savior. And he has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. So you can confidently say, this day and every day forward from now, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, we want to present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. And we ask that you'd give us grace to fix our gaze on Jesus Christ. We've been asking that through this whole series. Help us to see him and to trust him. And as we do, you'll give us grace to live the way that your scriptures teach us to live. And there's real excitement in it. We're thrilled to be able to live for Jesus Christ. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Help us to believe your promises. And to be a light, a lamp set on a hill, a city on a hill, shining brightly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.